I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike and joining me on today's episode are Anne-Marie and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. This week, we're talking about whether Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard will ever go through. We break down the next big threat to Meta's ad platform. And we ask why streaming sites keep cancelling your favourite shows. Anne-Marie, Rory, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Um, I'm just going to give a disclaimer that this is one of our few early morning recordings. So if we're a bit slow or you hear us... Slurping coffee, or we have that morning voice. Just you it's know. also was it the coldest night of the year in Ireland last night for yeah. like twenty years. You could yeah. feel it. It was bad. Yeah. Minus eleven. Well, it's been bad for a week. Like it's yeah. awful. Yeah. Did you say minus eleven? Some a place, some places in Ireland minus eleven. Jeez. That's that's Celsius now for our American listeners. It's not that bad. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know what that is. Like minus twenty or something. This is just going to be us. Blaming about early mornings in the cold for 20 minutes, is it? (laughs) Forget about the podcast. I was blaming it for bad takes. We just start. Anything you've ever wanted to say, do it now because you can just take it back later. You can get it out of the way. I was so tired. It was so tired. (laughs) It's been uh, been a bad week for Elon. Have you seen everything going on? He's no longer the richest man in the world. There's a new conspiracy theory that he just bought Twitter so he would uh, delete the account track in his jet. Have you seen that? Which he's done. Yep. Exactly. He got booed at the Dave Chappelle he show. Got the that booed was at the Dave so Chappelle. bad. I don't know what Dave Chappelle was thinking. Like, Yeah. Does he not realize that people don't like him now? <laughs> but I think this is the thing where he's got like a certain subset of people that love him so much that like, you know, that's his echo chamber or whatever that he doesn't really realize everyone else is like. I don't know. Get off the stage. Stop messing with Twitter. Leave Twitter alone. Right. Um, before this turns into an Elon tirade, we should get into actual news. So starting off with the Microsoft Activision acquisition. And it feels like this has been happening basically since they announced it. Uh, back in January, uh, Microsoft announced a $69 billion blockbuster acquisition of Activision Blizzard. It's a games developer, produces titles like Call of Duty, Um and it really just seems to have gotten under the skin of every regulator across the world. Uh, with the FTC, the Federal T- Trade Commission, now getting in on the action, they are putting on a lawsuit to block the deal. Rory, could you give us a quick re-back, recap of kind of this roller coaster of an acquisition that it just doesn't have? It seems to not have been smooth since the day they announced it. Yeah. So I mean, as you said, it was way back this year in January when Microsoft announced its intention to acquire Activision Blizzard for a $69 billion all-cash deal. It would have come out at about $95 per share. And I mean, to think back about so long ago now, but thinking back to that time, there was quite a lot of negative news out there regarding Activision. Um, There'd been quite a few kind of poor quarterly reports a few projects hadn't really worked out for them. Um, and then came out this lawsuit 
basically that alleged sexual harassment and discrimination um, and a kind of culture of that uh, in the company, which included complaints against the CEO, Bob Kotick. So around that, I mean, around that time, there was plenty of rumors floating around that Activision was on the on the block to be sold, if nothing else, just to kind of end the bad news cycle. Uh, and also, and also because I think people, they kind of maybe figured that Activision Blizzard may not be able to stand alone in the face of kind of growing competition from bigger players in the space. Um, so meta platforms was the suitor kind of most papers reported, although we found it subsequently that Microsoft had actually been discussing a deal with Activision long before that. And, yeah, I mean, the deal, which when completed would have seen Activision, Blizzard and King, which is the mobile game company they acquired, they would all come under the Xbox gaming studio. It would give them franchises like Call of Duty, Overwatch, World of Warcraft, Diablo, Candy Crush. It would be the largest gaming acquisition in history and would make Microsoft the third largest video game company in the world behind Tencent and Sony. Um, however, as you said, the deal has come and sparked quite a few antitrust concerns. Both the UK and Europe have said they were investigate the deal further. And just was it just last week the FTC said they had plans to formally block the merger, saying it would give uh, Microsoft too much power in the video game space. So that that's where we're we're that's us up to now. Yeah. I think you can throw Canada in there as well. As Canada said they they were blocking it. Saudi Arabia approved it. Saudi so Arabia approved it. They approved it. I don't know how much. <laughs> I don't know how much. Um, how much influence that's going to have over the deal actually happening. But Saudi Arabia has. Okay, good to know. Well, look at like at first glance, I think the objections to this deal make sense, at, at least to me, and very little I know about antitrust. Um, if Microsoft owns Activision, Xbox, Xbox will have an unfair advantage over competitors. It'll reduce customer choice. You could see Call of Duty becoming a a platform specific game so you can't play Call of Duty on the PlayStation or, or whatever it is. How do you think Microsoft's defense of this acquisition will play out? Because it seems like the other side has a pretty strong case, you know? Well, like you, I'm no antitrust expert, but I have I've been reading a lot on it over the past week or so and it's I don't think it's quite as simple as saying, oh well, Microsoft owns the developer. Um, therefore, it's going to reduce customer choice. Um, ben Thompson at Stratechery, who writes about this stuff in depth, uh, has written an amazing article which traces the video game industry back kind of 40 years and shows that it's actually been quite a dynamic and kind of rapidly changing industry um, throughout. Uh, at different times, companies have gone through different models, which has forced other companies to adapt. There's been various kind of hybrids of hardware and software packaging exclusiveness um, Nintendo for example uh, has long kept very tight controls over the games that they that are allowed to be on its platform to the point where many of its biggest names are just owned by Nintendo itself uh, then you know Sega came along and did the exact opposite basically let anyone develop for their consoles when they first came out and then we've kind of gone you know in the last decade or so we've had a kind of console war um, which has kind of ended up with the consoles themselves kind of really becoming commodities. You know, most major developers now, the games cost so much to make that they really want to be across all consoles anyway because they're just trying to capture as much revenue as possible. And whether you're on PlayStation or whether you're on Xbox is really kind of not even a, a secondary, just like a tertiary thought in the minds of developers. You know, and Sony, for example, has 
bought up a number of developing development studios and has PlayStation exclusives, you know, some that are just time bound ones or some that are kind of total exclusives. And so there's, I suppose there's a kind of, I don't know, hypocrisy here. I know, I know this is a huge one. This is you know, the, the biggest game acquisition ever, but there are co- companies out there that have gaming, you know, game exclusives. And what Thompson would argue is that Microsoft bought Activision for kind of $69 billion dollars with that price tag came the assumption that they were going to make a certain amount of money off the Activision library of games. So it would be quite value destructive to remove those games from, you know, the biggest console. And to his point, Microsoft has come out and said, it's happy to sign a contract to keep games like Call of Duty on the PlayStation for 10 years. Phil Spencer, who runs Xbox Gaming Unit, who said they would make Call of Duty for PlayStation as long as there was a PlayStation to ship it to. So, you know, they're they're being quite, you know, they're consenting quite a lot here in terms of what the the FTC is arguing. Um, moreover, like these games have evolved past this kind of exclusive model. You know, games make money now by being these kind of always on networks that generate kind of ancillary revenue through expansion packs and microtransactions. Um, that seems like a much better idea for kind of future revenue um, than kind of just, you know, making an exclusive and trying to sell some real low margin hardware. Uh, I think more likely what Microsoft wants to do is it's trying to create this kind of cloud gaming service. It's called the Xbox Pass. And, you know, he wants to have as many titles on that pass as possible, not necessarily making them exclusives, you know, so... It can be on the Xbox Pass and, you know, you can still use it on PlayStation. You can still buy the game. You could potentially even have it on PlayStation's version of their Pass. But by owning it, they can offer a better deal to consumers. And Microsoft could come out and argue that that actually is, rather than kind of restricting competition, it's actually creating competition against the likes of Apple and Google, who currently have a duopoly on that market. And I think there's bit of a strong case there you know there's not many companies that could go out and take on the likes of apple and google um we saw epic try over the last few years with that kind of with you know with little success so you know they could argue well there's already a duopoly there um so you need to you need to help us create competition in the space and that probably is where their defense is going to come from that's interesting uh, no it's interesting what you said about mike's after buying this to make money out of say we call of duty and if you completely cut Call of Duty's potential revenues by half, it kind of really cutting off your nose to spite your face kind of situation, yeah? I mean, there's an argument that, you know, look, Activision's revenues are so small compared to Microsoft's. And maybe they would, you know, maybe they would say, well, we're willing to take that hit. But, you know, Nadella has said many times each part of the company needs to be able to stand on its own. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it would be... Potentially, you know, like in the past, they've done things like they've bought development studios and, and you know, the current titles that have been part of that by they've let be on all consoles, whereas they've, you know, they've decided to develop new titles themselves exclusively for their engine. So they could go down that route. But this idea that they're just going to yank Call of Duty off everything except, um, except Xbox doesn't really make sense, I don't think. And then on the other side of it, what happens if the deal does blow up, uh, like does Activision tank from here? I know Warren Buffett placed a pretty large arbitrage bet that the acquisition would go through back in 
Yeah, I, did, I didn't actually know about that Buffett thing until you told me about it. Um, I think he owns like 9% of the shares he now. Owns like <laughs> 6 billion or something crazy. I can't yeah, remember he's, exactly. He's, um, he's obviously, I can only see, yeah, like I don't assume like he's buying it because he's, he's he thinks the deal is going to go through. Um, I said, when I saw it as well, I thought, you know how you see Berkshire acquisitions that are very clearly not Buffett? Um, I saw, I thought it was one of those. And then it, I read the article and I was like, no, it's like literally, he's like, oh yeah, every now and then I see a little, I see a little punt, a little arbitrage bet. And this is one of this those. This is one of his cigars on the ground, is it? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, what would happen if it doesn't go through? I mean, I would expect if we're, if we're looking at the way um, valuation multiples have compressed since January last year or January this year, um, or even if you take a look at what's happened to uh, Take Two Interactive, which would be its closest kind of pure play in the market, you would expect the stock would come under significant pressure. But it, you know, who who knows? Maybe maybe there's other buyers out there if if Microsoft can't get it over the line. Yeah, it's kind of it's on the block, as you said. Moving then on a bit of a tangent, and this is kind of more about acquisitions in general. Why are regulators so against acquisitions from big tech? So we saw Facebook couldn't even get that uh, Giphy, 300 million Giphy acquisition through, which is, I think, just basically a, a bunch of GIFs. Like, what, what, what's, why, are, why are regulators so rankled against these big companies kind of buying, buying up? I mean, there's definitely a kind of ghost of Christmas past lurking around regulators um, ever since the kind of Instagram acquisition. Uh, you know, at the time... It looked like a small enough deal that probably no one could predict would have such a huge impact um, in terms of the world of digital advertising. Uh, I think there's a lot of kind of fear and the kind of power that big tech currently has. We look at what happened with Cambridge Analytica uh, and the impact that that had on on the potential impact that had on the 2016 elections. I think even more generally than that, there's a public interest, um, a kind of vocal public interest that has emerged over the last few years where like people, the actual public, not just regulators are getting more concerned about the rise of big tech and the levels of control that they have. And people are, you know, they're getting more concerned about privacy, more concerned about data tracking. And in the US anyway, I mean, I wrote a piece about this few years ago it's actually one of the few kind of bipartisan political movements out there you know both democrats and republicans actually want big tech on a tighter leash uh, and so you know regulators are are happy to, to 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 go down that route when they know there's there's public support behind it as well as this kind of yeah this kind of tension between political power and the kind of the kind of dark power that big tech has over us. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Closing out then, going to your head, do you think this acquisition goes through or no? From what I've been reading, the general consensus seems to be that it will eventually go through. You know, it's one of those cases where it's a kind of vertical, vertical integration acquisition. The companies don't particularly compete with each other. And, you know, they may have to, you know, they may have to put out a few more concessions to kind of appease regulators but in the end i think the 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 lawyers that i've been reading don't seem to think that the the case has much legs and that it will eventually make its way through so you're following you're following your buddy warren on the arbitrage bed is that it? <laughs> i'm thinking about it well, he i mean you know him he's 
he always knows something. <laughs> okay. Moving on then to another big tech, um, big tech company, and the news isn't really getting any better. EU privacy regulators have come to a ruling that Meta should no longer require its users to agree to be sold ads based on their online activity. So the decision isn't enforceable yet, and it'll likely go through years of appeals, but the potential implications mean that Facebook may no longer be able to track its users' data across its own family of apps. Amory, this is basically the company's entire business model. How how big of a story is this? We We've seen the damage Apple's decision to require users to opt into tracking costs Facebook there last year. Is this on a similar level? Yeah, I, w- I would say it's a, it's a pretty big deal. This could this one could could, could hurt. Uh, the ruling is referencing, obviously, a law from 2018, which is known as GDPR. Um, if you live in the EU, I'm sure you are very familiar with it because anytime you go on a website, you have to consent to those GDPR rules. Um, GDPR essentially said that a business cannot demand the ability to track you in exchange for a service, with the exception being that unless the data is necessary for the service to function. So like a delivery app has the right to demand access to your location so they can make sure they're delivering your pizza to the correct address. But Meta has been using this loophole for years, claiming that the data is necessary to keep the service up and running and keep ads relevant. Um, It actually hides this in its terms of service. When you sign up for Facebook or Instagram, you actually consent to this. It, It basically says, hey, you're going to give us our your data in in exchange for the ability to come on this website and make a horrible profile and share your ugly photos. So um, basically, if this if this ruling goes through, the extent to which um, we have yet to see and you know how it will be enforced, Meta will be quite restricted. And it and targeted advertising is such an important part of their revenue stream. I, I think it's it's going to hurt. Like for context, you mentioned the IDFA tracking in, in the opener in 2021 that caused them to lose. 8% of, of revenue, just like wiped off the board from just, a decision that Apple Just made. quickly to distinguish as well the difference between what this means and what the Apple IDFA tracking is. So Apple was tracking, Facebook was basically able to track users' activity outside of its family of apps. Yep. So if you were on Facebook, you went through and you Googled, I don't know, Christmas calendars, Facebook could see that and it could deliver you a Christmas calendar ad on your Instagram feed. Yep. That's basically not completely gone, but Apple has basically asked users to opt into that. I think like 5% mm-hmm. of people have done so. Yeah, what, it's, it's very low. Yeah. yeah. And so what 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 does this ruling entail then? What's the exact difference there? This essentially means that like Facebook would be, you wouldn't be allowed to like go on Facebook and they would track you internally within Facebook itself. So say you go on Facebook which if you're still on there, what's going on? But, um, you know, you go on, you, I don't know, maybe use a ver- section of their e-commerce website. Um, you're searching for an ottoman. And then every single ad that's going to pop up in your Facebook is going to be an ottoman. And then you might then go on over to Instagram and get a bunch of ads for ottomans. Um, that will all be stopped. Like they won't be allowed to track you internally at all, which is insane because that would be essentially the end of, of, of targeted advertising so like they got an eight percent hit with idfa this i would say this would be equivalent like that's it's it's not insignificant and also like we have to talk about the, the fact that the eu for several years now tends to kind of be the first mover when it comes to these regulatory standards you know the eu is pushing apple to say that you can't use a lightning cable anymore which effectively means now that that will change the international standards for apple across the board because obviously if you adopt one standard for one region you may as well do it for the rest so yeah it's gonna it's it's gonna hurt meta uh in virtually 
every single market. And you can kind of see that in Meta's response to these reports coming out. A, a spokesperson for them said, this is not the final decision and it is too early to speculate. We've engaged fully with the DPC on their inquiries and we'll continue to engage with them as they finalize their decision. Um, so it seems to be Meta is kind of crossing its fingers and hoping this isn't going to go through. Yeah, it's funny as well. It's it's the Ireland Irish Data Protection Commission, is that? Yep. So they actually have to enforce it because Meta's HQ is in Dublin. So that'll be... yeah. That'll be interesting. Um, Which they must be so busy because every European like headquarters of every tech company is here. So does that mean that Ireland is essentially responsible for monitoring everybody? Well, th- did you see the amount of fines uh, oh, yeah. in that Wall Street Journal article? <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, I can talk about that. Like <laughs> all, their, all their job seems to be just collecting fines off every tech company in Europe. Yeah. Uh, what should I uh, not doing? Like, anyway. Yeah. Uh, is it fair to say that this ruling kind of puts the whole advertising on the internet business model in jeopardy, or is this a Facebook Facebook specific problem? Um, yeah, the EU's decision is kind of showcasing the willingness to pursue an end to behavioral advertising, which is just the concept of tracking people and then showing them ads based upon that. But like, it isn't it isn't like a cr- the creation of a new law. This law already exists. Like GDPR is already happening. This is just an instance of enforcement of, of an existing law and kind of the EU bearing its teeth, if you will. Um, so as you just said, there were a huge amount of fines. Amazon was fined $786 million last year in Luxembourg for violations relating to the exact same law. So it seems like everybody is doing this. Everybody is exploiting this loophole. Like this isn't a new thing. So in this specific instance, it is meta that is under the microscope. You know, this ruling will impact them the most because it is an investigation into their own behavior under GDPR. However, I think this is an indication that like the EU is willing and able to go after Google or Snapchat or Twitter. Um, you know, it seems that this is something that they're interested in pursuing. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see a case show up for another company um, sometime soon. Um, I think we would like to think that tech companies made adjustments in 2018 and they saw the GDPR law. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Coming and they said, right, we're going to fix ourselves. We'll come into alignment with this. But I don't think any tech companies have probably done that. I think they all were just like, oh, we'll find a loophole. We'll exploit it. Nothing has to change because essentially their entire business model is built upon this. You said that in the intro. So it will be very, I think, yeah, if this happens, like we could see you know, probably a slow but not insubstantial change to the way that social media companies function and most tech companies in general, to be honest. Yeah. And that that's kind of where I'm going with this next question. There are a hundred hypotheticals involved in this, but if this does get enforced as, as the EU kind of sees it being enforced, who would be the beneficiaries of it? 
Yeah, I think it is an interesting question. I, I I think if you were an ad spender, you probably would begin to divert money away from social media simply based upon the fact that you don't know the effectiveness of the service. So I would say you'd probably pause everything similar to how, you know, we're seeing Twitter have virtually anyone who spends money on there has, has essentially paused spending. And most companies, Twitter makes up like anywhere between like five and eight percent of their annual spend. So then there's just no, no money flowing there. And it's interesting to see companies are so willing to make that make that change. Um, that means that they're going to have money to spend and they're going to have stuff that they want to market and they're going to need a place to do it. And I think this is going to place an awful lot of power in probably connected TV, which is like something, um, Mike, you've been talking about for probably the last year in relation to like where is the ad market going. Um, because streaming is essentially like another form of targeting because they can but, see how but, long you want. But that's what I would say as well. Is is that a form of behavioral advertising and using people's data to target ads as well? Yeah, this is what I'm unclear about is I don't know because they're accessing like what you're watching and how long you're streaming for, but I have yet to see regulators discuss that instance. And if we have to do this thing where every company gets pulled up in front of a court independently and gets yelled at and gets fined, does that mean that like, yes, the tracking that streaming is doing is also illegal, but we're going to end up talking about it in 10 years or in seven years or something like that? Similarly, like we have the trade desk has essentially created the alternative to IDFA tracking, which is it says is more secure because all of the data is essentially like collected and stored anonymously. So it's like not as attributable to you. And that's called Unified ID 2.0. And I think like the trade desk talks about that, like this is essentially going to be their tailwind for the next five to 10 years because most companies are going to need it in order to effectively advertise. But yeah, I mean, in theory, with the way the GDPR is written, it's so broad that in theory, yes, we could turn around and say that, oh, I feel that my data should not I should not have to give you my data in order to access this service. Uh, maybe the loophole for streaming is that they could say, well, when you pay for a streaming service, you don't have to look at ads. So we are not forcing you mm-hmm. to participate in this. It so, would also be probably part of uh, making the streaming service function. Like, as in, they need mm-hmm. to track your interests and what you watch to recommend the next yeah. thing to watch. Yeah. So. It will be interesting to see. I'd say, yeah, it is going to put the ball in connected TV's court probably a little bit more than it is at the minute. I mean, we know that money is flowing into into that um, area and more and more streamers are bringing in ads. So um, it's definitely one to watch. I think it, it will be very interesting. I also think like just as a side note, we might actually be in an era where more responsibility and money will be given to advertising firms. You know, we are we going back to like the Mad Men style ads where all of a sudden people actually do need to get together and be like, what is a universal creative campaign that we could run across all platforms? Because now we can't just throw together something that's meant to appeal to the 18 to 22 demographic on Facebook in Utah. So, you know, like maybe this is a great time to be in the ad business. Yeah. as we, I think we said this a while back, bring back billboards. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Rory, you just touched on this recently. I think either he could could contribute here, but e-regulators definitely seem to come down harder on tech companies and especially social media companies than say the US regulators. Well, why is that? Why is there such a harsher regulatory environment in Europe rather than the US? Because they keep breaking the rules. I mean, I don't, <laughs> it just seems to be that they're constantly finding them. And perhaps that's why, yeah, uh, you know, when, when, when they've tried to work with them and they just continuously don't do what is asked, they do tend to become a bit more um, aggressive in pursuit. Yeah. 
I think it comes down to like there's like three things. It's like lobbying, public interest, and and like just regulation and culture. Um, between 2014 and 2019, the amount of money spent on lobbying by Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple grew by 500% in the European Union. So they do seem quite afraid that this is going to happen, but they've obviously been spending billions lobbying in the United States for years. Um, but kind of beyond that, I think more importantly, EU citizens, as Roy mentioned in the last piece, are really interested in regulation. It's something that they publicly talk about. It's something that they expect. Um, there was a survey in 2019 and 74% of European citizens said they want to know how their data is used by social media platforms when they access other websites. So like this is something that people are quite openly engaged with. But then also the EU benefits from the fact that it has a regulatory culture in which it can successfully pass these laws. You know, the U United States since probably the 1980s has effectively no antitrust regulation to be able to make decisions and then enforce them. I think the EU is like just more equipped for that. And then as I mentioned, I do think the EU is very self-aware of the fact that like they have the first mover advantage. So if they sit around and wait, the United States might make the decision five years down the line, and then the EU might get stuck with like a deal they're only 50% happy with because the EU, you know, has opposed one 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 part of a policy but not another. And so I think the EU is saying, right, if no one else is going to do this, we're going to do this, and we're going to set a very high standard in which we're happy with it. Um, but yeah, it's a it's it's an it's 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 an interesting time. It'll be it'll be interesting to see, you know, I don't know how like would it, how are they going to enforce Meta? It's a massive international company. How much are they going to find them? I think all that stuff will be very interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely. I would welcome down to the Irish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, before we move on to mailbag, then I just want to give a quick shout out to our daily newsletter, The Opening Bell. Many of you will already be subscribers, but if you haven't heard of it, Opening Bell is our daily email. It takes a look at the most important news story of the day, kind of like a very condensed version of the morning brew. Arriving in your inbox right before the market opens, it's the perfect newsletter to get you ready for the day. If you're a listener and enjoy my Wall Street and our take on things, you're going to love Opening Bell, so click on the link in our show notes to sign up. Mailbag. So we have a question in from a listener, and this is quite a broad one. Um, he's just wondering why streaming services are cancelling so many popular shows right now. Anne-Marie, you're kind of our resident streaming expert. Yeah, this is actually an interesting question, especially this week, as HBO Monday or Tuesday announced that it was canceling Westworld, first off, and that it would be removing the show almost immediately from HBO Max, so it won't be allowed to stream anymore. Um, and that's despite the fact that they just put out a Westworld fourth season, like, not too long ago. So you'd think, like, that thing still has some legs and people might still be tuning in. Um, and I could see this being done for a couple of reasons. Firstly, like, just saving money right off the bat. So when you prevent a show from streaming, it means you don't have to pay residuals to the cast and crew. So, like, typically, anytime, like, something gets streamed, um, Fingers crossed, like, <laughs> the people who were involved in the creation of that get a very, very tiny payment. But if you cut off the public's access to, you know, purchase that or stream that, um, it means you don't have to pay anyone anymore. So you're just effectively eliminating a long-term expense. There's also, like, a very minor cost of, of having to host a TV show on your server and allow people to view it. That's probably very small. They're probably not saving that much there. But I would say probably more importantly, particularly in the case of HUMAX, Max, is it's going to give the service a really nice tax write-off. Um, the way that streamers amortize content, which like amortization is the equivalent of depreciation when an asset isn't tangible. So like stuff like te a television show, you know, how do you value the, the television show's brand or how much it's worth. Um, it's not really, you know, tangible. So um, in the case of streamers, the process typically takes several years. So, you know, you produce a TV show and the value of that TV show will gradually decline over a period of several years because, you know, you can you can probably say, okay, right off the bat, 
a bunch of people might sign up for a service to view this TV show. And then, you know, as we move further and further into the future, that number is naturally going to decrease. So in the case of Netflix, they amortize content over the course of three years where the it's something like 50 or 60% of the amortization takes place in the first year. Because obviously, like, most people view new net, new and exciting Netflix content like as soon as it comes out. You know, no one's tuning in three years later. Maybe if it's, you know, something they only just – they continually hear about in the office, like something like House of Cards back in the day. But now HBO is essentially saying we're amortizing this content right now all together one, in one fill swoop. So by HBO removing it, Westworld will be amortized all at once, which is probably hundreds of millions of dollars. And then they get to make a nice tax write-off, which is something that Warner Warner – uh, Discovery, Discovery, what is it? Warner, Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers Discovery. Discovery. There we go. That's something like they seem to be doing the last several quarters. Like since the company went public, they're in this like absolute scorched earth, fix the financials. And so they're just writing off everything. Like it's unbelievable to think that they wrote off that Batgirl movie that they poured something like $150 million into. And then- It just doesn't exist anymore, yeah. Yeah, they were like, we're not going to stream it and we're not going to release it into theaters and we're not going to let you even buy a DVD. It just doesn't exist. We're just going to write this all off, which is pretty ridiculous. And it actually does raise kind of an interesting point, which is that we don't really own physical copies of work anymore. You know, no one's buying box set DVDs. They released the first season of Stranger Things on a box set like way back in the day. They have not done that subsequently. And it just is that kind of reminder of if you don't know how to pirate content, (laughs) if a streamer says this isn't going to be streamable anymore, and particularly if it's an original produced by a streaming company, which means they own the exclusive rights to it, it's entirely possible that you wouldn't be able to access that program again. And it makes me think of – I read like an interesting Twitter thread from Alina Smith, who was the creator of a TV show called Dickinson, which was like one of the first TV shows that Apple ever put out. And she said that for over a year, she spoke to executives at Apple begging to have her TV show on a box set just for herself. She didn't want it to be publicly released. She just want, liked the idea of her being able to physically own the thing that she had created. So, you know, worst comes to worst. I don't know Apple goes bankrupt tomorrow and the TV show vanishes. She would at least be like, well, I own this. I can go back and view it. It's mine. It's tangible. There's essentially no one doing that anymore. So, yeah, it's it's – you know, it's it's a reminder we more and more exist in this economy where you're not allowed to own things. You're only allowed to rent them. And, you know, that means that your corporate overlord can say this is going away tomorrow and you don't get you don't get you're going to say in that. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I know Netflix has canceled a bunch of shows recently as well. I'd say it's the same thing. Saving money, tax write offs. Mm. Um, yeah. Good to know. I know that. I read something a while ago where um I don't know whether this was just conspiracy theory or whether it was actually... No, please, uh, Roy, we love conspiracy theories on this show. But yeah. uh, the reason why Netflix cancels so many shows who are in the second season, even though they're popular, is that they typically have them on a kind of two-season contract. Um, and once the show's kind of brought in the audience, they, they don't feel like they're going to grow a bigger audience from that because no one really starts a season at season three. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just becomes kind of, yeah, more economic for them to to cancel it and then hope to get another big hit. It's also they're in the third season where, you know, actors and stuff start trying to yep. renegotiate their contracts up. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know whether that's all conspiracy yeah. theory or whether they actually have the data behind it. There right, is another... Yeah, there's another instance in which um, the way that Netflix used to negotiate contracts, like back in the day when they were kind of developing and they were fighting with proper old studios trying to get access to actors and, and creators, um, was that they used to pay a pre- like a 20% premium on top of whatever the creator's fee was going to be. It was like a bonus. The issue is, is that obviously as TV shows become more popular, the collective bargaining that the creators and the actors get is that they should be making more money every season. 
But then it meant that by the time they would hit the third season, the 20 or 30% premium that Netflix had promised all these people was a huge amount of money because they had negotiated their contracts up higher in response to the popularity of their show. And so, yeah, Netflix was just like, oh, even if the show is popular, that premium can hurt them so much that they're like, never mind, we're just going to cancel this. Like, this isn't worthwhile. Yeah, I saw that that Sandman show. Did you, either of you watch that? I haven't watched no. it, but I did see people talking about it. It's it's okay. It's out there. Um, but like that was one of the most popular shows on Netflix. But like that's not guaranteed to get another season yeah. because it's not the kind of it's not bringing in new people. It's just existing mm-hmm. subscribers that like to watch it. Whereas Stranger Things, when a new season comes out, everyone goes and downloads it. Probably re-downloads mm-hmm. and pays for Netflix again after canceling it. So yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if because, you know, Netflix now has to give up its viewership data in order to sell ads like they they have to partner with these um, data analytics companies. Um, I wonder if that means there will be more public outcry when shows like that get canceled, because it's been interesting to watch like very famous movie directors essentially like for the first week or two that their project goes onto Netflix where they're publicly announcing, okay, guys. We're number three in the world. Like, everybody, we need you to keep streaming because they're just, like, begging for more, for the ability to create more. Like, Guillermo del Toro, arguably, like, one of the most famous directors in the world. He just released Pinocchio this week and was giving, like, an hour-by-hour review on Twitter of how popular his new movie was. And it's just a bit, I don't know, it's, it's like, trying to replicate that idea of looking, watching the box office numbers roll in, but in streaming. And, like, you just don't have the same access to information. So you don't know, like... There could be some random show that's the most popular show on Netflix, and we would never know if Netflix like didn't tell us in the past, or is at least now we should get some more insights into what's what's popular. Yeah, and I just before we move on, I want to go back to uh, you saying that the major fallout from Apple going bankrupt is that the show Dickinson no longer exists. I think it would be that would be the biggest tragedy. <laughs> never mind that none of our phones would work, like crippled. Like our business is entirely built on Apple computers. We would just be like, well. <laughs> get some microsoft tablets in here uh okay let's finish out today uh with an elevator pitch um amory what are you pitching us today um i have a very like you pitch in that i'm doing research a for me pitch no an you pitch like ew E-W, pitch. Ew, okay, like gross sorry. um I I was getting that, called out there no <laughs> if it was a you pitch it would be a cybersecurity company that would be very complex and the pitch would be like 15 minutes long of us just trying to understand how the business functions. Well, that's how I try um, to understand as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had a look at like at Live Nation, which Live, it's Live Nation Ticketmaster is the big combined entity who is like has risen to become the pop culture antichrist in the last month. Um, Taylor, the, the Taylor Swift fans, they're livid, very upset. And is so that the I, only reason you, you looked into this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Because I did it because I was curious. I was like, if this business is so corrupt, is it good at making money? That was my question. Um, So I wanted to see, like, is this is this a good investment? And like, it's fine. It's like C minus because they're not profitable. How can you have such high ticket fees and not be profitable? And have a basic monopoly, like that is insane to me. Like they achieved achieved profitability for the first time in 2019 for two consecutive quarters, and then obviously the pandemic hit and it just went away. And they haven't gotten back in, back there since. And like, you'd think it would be pretty solid because they have really routine revenue growth. It's like around 12%. They're in this expanding market. They have no competition, which they, you know, did themselves. They successfully booted out just about anyone who could oppose them. So you'd think that they should be making money hand over fist, but yeah, no, uh, not crazy profitable, like not 
growing the fastest you'd want to see. So yeah, it just it just wouldn't be a business for me, particularly because you would have to swallow your pride in order to own the stock. You would hold, have to hold your nose is what uh, Jason Mose used to say. Yeah, just jump <laughs> right in, never buy another concert ticket and make like fine returns. So yeah, it wouldn't be wouldn't be for me, no. It's funny that like Ticketmaster has this dirty business model and a basic monopoly and stuff and have been fine for how long, Mm. but you piss off the Swifties and it all comes down. I think there's an investigation into them now and all the rest. Yeah. DOJ's open investigation. They could, (laughs) they could bring it down. They are rabid, rabid, (laughs) like just insatiable. They're insane. So yeah, they can be outside. I like to say you're saying they, as if it's not a we. Well, I mean, I would like to think if there was a mass protest against Ticketmaster because Taylor Swift orchestrated it, I do think that myself and Rory would be involved. <laughs> we, we're all Swifties on this day. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rory, what have you been looking at? Uh, far less controversial. Um, I'm looking at a company, newly named company, by the way, called Top Golf Callaway Group. I think we talked about them previously. Oh, when yeah, they were yeah, just yeah, called yeah. Callaway. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, now being, they're now renamed Top Golf Callaway Group, which kind of gives you a, a, an idea of where they're um, where they're pushing this company going forward. Anyone who plays golf, I'm sure is familiar with Callaway, the equipment maker and apparel maker. They actually have a kind of suite of companies, including Jack Wolfskin and a few others. Mm. Um, however, they acquired a company two years ago called Topgolf, which is actually a British company, but has become very popular in the United States. Um, for those who don't know, it's kind of like a driving range, but with kind of a built-in gaming element so you can play various games using these like microchipped golf balls um, and also a place where you can go, you can get a few drinks, have some food. It's much more of a party atmosphere than say 18 holes. Uh, and it's really popular for both golfers and non-golfers. Um, this is where they really see their growth coming from. Currently it accounts for about 38% of the company's revenue. They're going to try and grow that to 46% by 2025. Uh, yeah, really doubling down on Top Golf. They've opened eleven new venues this year. They're going to plan on expanding that next year, expanding their international presence. Presence, and you know there is some evidence to say they may be onto something. It's a version of golf that's a lot more appealing to a younger audience, a more diverse audience. And what I'm just kind of trying to figure out now is: is this going to be one of those long-lasting businesses, um, or whether it's going to you know, go the way of the escape rooms and uh, mm. bowling alleys, which my um, my family was involved with many, many years ago. Uh, mm. And whether there's like, whether there's really any kind of synergies to these two companies being connected. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm taking a look mm. at at the moment. Yeah, I think it costs a lot more to build a driving range than a than an escape room. So yeah. there's a lot more sunk costs there. But no, I've looked at that company as well. I actually own some shares. It's interesting. Uh-huh. I have a bowling alley question. Did you own your own bowling shoes so that you didn't have to borrow them at the bowling alley? Um, well, so, uh, uh, no, I didn't. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and uh, was there anything else bar just the bowling alley? Maybe uh, something? Yeah, there was qu- there was like Quasar. <laughs> roller skating. Stuff. Yeah, there was rollerblading. And there was were, rollerblading. You, were you particularly good at I rollerblading? Was, I was good at rollerblading, yeah. <laughs> So I'd like no to one say. in the office believes me. Not my partner didn't believe me. <laughs> one of these days, we're going to find a pair of rollerblades, and I'll show you all. And next Christmas party, there is a roller rink up on the the north side. We could go up and that is a lawsuit waiting to happen. Give a demonstration. <laughs> Full of pints going rollerblading. 
kill someone. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's it. Thanks for the pitches, lads. And thanks for tuning in today. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.